I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Most of us became familiar this year, probably more than ever before, with hurricanes. We found out about the hurricane rating system. They have a rating system from category 1 to 5. Category 5, hurricane, means any storm with winds in excess of 155 miles per hour. There is no Category 6. 2005 was a record-setting hurricane season. We saw the most storms. 26 were named. And since they don't use all the letters of the English alphabet, this was the first time in history that they actually had to move to the Greek alphabet to name the storms. Of those 26, 13 developed into hurricanes. We saw the most intense hurricane in history, Wilma, with sustained wind speeds of 175 miles per hour. We saw the most destructive hurricane in history, Katrina, estimated at $125 billion worth of damage. We saw the most Category 5 hurricanes in one season, three, Katrina, Rita, and Wilma. Why do they name them after ladies? That's another message. No, we, wa we all watched on television as Katrina approached the Gulf Coast and most people evacuated north to safety, but others chose to stay and suffer the consequences. And that made people even more responsive when the warning came that Hurricane Rita was bearing down on Galveston. And we saw those pictures of people in Houston heading north bumper to bumper on the interstate using all four lanes of the interstate to try to get out of Houston. You know, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be wonderful if people responded to God's warnings about future judgment with that same fervor? You see, God has given His forecast. God has given His warning, and it's not simply a prognostication. There is no guesswork. There is no chance that His judgment will lose steam and be downgraded to a Category 3. There is no chance that it will veer off and miss us. The Apostle Paul stood in the city of Athens in Acts 17 and gave this warning. He said, God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. The last book of the Bible is largely devoted to detailed warnings of the judgment to come. Millions of people today have read with fascination the Left Behind series that portrays the coming judgment. And yet, how many are fleeing the wrath to come? This morning we're going to look at the third illustration of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and that's Noah. We read about him in one verse, in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah is an example to us of how to prepare for Category 5 judgment. In fact, of all the examples in Hebrews chapter 11, Noah is the only one in which the unseen future involves judgment rather than rewards. He shows us that faith regards both the promises of God and the warnings of God. 
And three things stand out to me about Noah in verse 7. I've listed them in your bulletin, and I think we can all relate to all three of these in our situations today. The first is the revelation. Verse 7 says that Noah was warned by God. God communicated to Noah. God revealed something to Noah. And even those who are only vaguely familiar with the Bible know what that warning was. It was the flood. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 6. It says, God looked on the earth and it was corrupt in His sight. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that He made man and He was grieved in His heart. And so He said, Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth. I'm going to send rain and flood the earth and destroy all of mankind. Now I want you to notice three things about this revelation. First of all, it was unseen. You know, with our modern technology, you can see a hurricane warning on television. If you live on the coast, the radar picture shows a huge mass of swirling clouds heading toward your city. We even have today planes that fly into the eye of the hurricane. They measure the wind speeds. They tell us the direction. It's all quite visible. But God warned Noah, according to verse 7, about things not yet seen. Now, obviously, Noah had never seen a worldwide flood. But Noah had not even seen a local flood. In fact, I believe he had never seen rain. Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 says that the Lord had not sent rain upon the earth. And apparently in that day, there was like a vapor canopy that covered the earth. And it says a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Kind of like a sprinkler system that God had established. So for Noah, it wasn't like the warning of Hurricane Rita that followed the devastation of Hurricane Katrina, God was telling him about something he had never seen, a flood, and describing that it was going to happen through something he had never seen, rain. You see, this was an incredible forecast. And yet Noah believed God because verse 1 of Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is the substance of things not seen. Faith hears the word of the unseen God regarding those things we have not yet seen, and it brings them into our present experience. Alexander McLaren in his commentary said this about Noah, the far-off flood was more real to him than the shows of life around him. Therefore, he could stand all the taunts and gave himself to a course of life which was sheer folly unless the future was real. I like that line. He gave himself to a course of life which was sheer folly unless that future was real. Could you say that your course of life is sheer folly unless God's promise of reward and warning of judgment is real. Faith says in the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 1.12 that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And what is it that I have entrusted to him until that day? It's my life. Faith considers that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
People of faith live in such a way that 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says that if the promised resurrection of our bodies and eternity with God in heaven is a myth, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because we have lived our lives in light of those future promises. You see, the world should be able to look at your life, how you spend your money, and how you spend your time, and say, as they no doubt said about Noah, he's nuts. She's living her life as if there really is judgment coming. So first, the revelation was unseen. Secondly, the revelation was untimely. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man. Now when God is that upset, you would expect him to act immediately. You would expect him to judge the world on the spot. You would expect him to say like Emerald, bam. What does he do? He says, Noah, I want you to build an ark that's going to take you over a hundred years and then I'll bring judgment. Now that was not a logistical problem for God. I mean, it wasn't that he had to wait for the ark in order to save Noah and the animals. He could have, he could have picked them up like he did Enoch, wiped out the world and then set them back down. That was not the problem. You say, well, why did God wait so long? Well, he waited so long because of his mercy and patience. You say, well, Dan, how do you know that he was waiting because of his patience? I know because the Bible tells us so. See, Peter said in 1 Peter 3.20 that those who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought through safely through the water. See, God was waiting because of his patience. Last week we saw Enoch named his son Methuselah, which name means when he is dead, it will come. He was a walking prophecy warning people about the coming flood. People said, what's your name? I'm, when I'm dead, it will come. What will come? The flood will come. And if you read the genealogies in Genesis, you'll find out that the Methuselah died in the year of the flood. When he died, it came. Why did Methuselah live longer than anybody else in recorded history? Because God was waiting and waiting and waiting because of His mercy and His patience. And I want to tell you this. God's mercy and patience are at work in the same way today. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 that in the last days, mockers will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And Peter goes on to explain, he says, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The delay of God's judgment is because of His great patience and mercy. He's waiting for you to come. Now, having said that, please don't mistake the delay uncertainty. God's judgment is coming. 
In fact, there's an interesting verse in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3. God says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now, there's two ways to interpret that. Some say that he's, he's saying that, that he's going to reduce the length of man's life from what they were living back then, five, six, seven, eight hundred years, down to 120 years. And that may be the interpretation. Others take it to be that God is saying, I'm going to bring the flood, I'm going to bring the judgment in 120 years. And if we take it that second way, then we have to assume that the person that he was talking to when he said that was Noah. How would you like to be told that judgment is coming but won't arrive for 100, 120 years? You see, if you and I knew that, what would we do? We would probably procrastinate. And I think that's why God doesn't tell us when the judgment is coming. But you know, even though the warning was untimely, Noah didn't say 120 years is a long time, I've got lots of time. No, he got busy and he built the ark. So the revelation was unseen, it was untimely. Thirdly, it was unpopular. You see, this message wasn't a private revelation to Noah. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 says Noah was a preacher. That word means literally he was a herald. He took this message and he was proclaiming this message to the people of his generation. I like to believe he used the old bad news, good news approach. The bad news is that there's a flood coming and it's going to wipe out everybody on the earth. The good news is that I'm building an ark and it's going to be big enough to hold you if you want to get on. And of course, the obvious question at that point would be, well, when do you think you're going to be done? And I can imagine Noah saying, well, you know, I'm just kind of laying it out right now, but once I get rolling, it'll probably go pretty quickly. I'm thinking if everything goes well, maybe inside of a century. How popular do you think that message was? People said, let's see, we can heed God's warning about tomorrow and do something today that makes absolutely no sense and brings us absolutely no pleasure, i.e. help you build an ark, or we can forget about tomorrow and party today. And the people chose option two. In fact, we know that this message was unpopular because you know how many people heeded the warning and got on the ark? Eight. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. And although Scripture doesn't record it, there could be no doubt that the world would have ridiculed the man who spent a fortune in money and materials, who invested over a hundred years building a huge ship on dry land. Now, we don't know exactly where Noah lived, but most people project that Noah probably lived between the Tigris and Euphrates River, which means he would be at least 100, probably more like 200 miles from the large body of water that would handle a ship like this, which would today be the Persian Gulf. So he's out in the middle of dry land building a boat. And I imagine it was the big entertainment in town to come and watch old Noah build his ship. You know, in the face of all that ridicule, Noah had no one standing with him but his immediate family. He wasn't a member of the church. He wasn't in a small group. He didn't have an accountability partner. He didn't have one single friend who understood what he was doing. 
And so the revelation to Noah was unseen, it was untimely, it was unpopular. And yet Noah believed the Word of God. And I want to suggest to you today that we have similar revelation from God. The warning that God has given us about future judgment is unseen. You ever seen 100-pound hailstones coming out of heaven? That's what the Bible says is going to happen in a future day. Have you ever seen the sun and the moon go dark and stars fall out of the sky? Not a falling star. Real stars falling out of the sky. Have you ever seen the earth burned up with fire? That's what God says is going to happen in a future day. It's unseen. It's also untimely. It's been almost 2,000 years since the promise was made. Almost 2,000 years since the book of Revelation was written and it hasn't happened yet. It seems untimely that God hasn't done anything yet. And it's unpopular. If you tell people about this message, they're probably not going to listen. In fact, they're probably going to laugh at you if you live your life in light of God's warning. So I would suggest to you, if you're going to be a person who stands on the truth of God's Word, you're probably going to have to learn to stand alone the way Noah did. Second thing we see in verse 7 is the response. How did Noah respond to God's revelation? Well, look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark. Now, Noah responded in two ways. First of all, we see his attitude the word reverence means reverential fear or awe or respect. And it isn't just that Noah had fear about the judgment that was coming. Noah had fear and respect and awe for the God who promised that judgment. You see, the God who spoke the universe into existence out of nothing, according to chapter 11 and verse 3, is quite capable of commanding a flood to destroy all of human life on earth. And that's what Noah believed. And I might add that he's also able to bring the terrible judgments described in the book of Revelation. You see, we learn from Noah that responding in faith to God is not just a matter of the head, it's a matter of the heart. It begins with our attitude. It begins with a reverential fear and awe of God who has made the warning to us about what's going to happen. You know, there are certain groups of people in the Christian community today who are deep into emotion and often shallow in biblical truth. And those of us who are committed to the truths of God's Word often overreact to that emotional response that people portray, and we swing too far in the other direction. We deny the validity of emotions in response to the truth of God. God wants a balance of both. God wants the truth to fill our heads, but also grip our hearts. I like what Alexander McLaren said. He said, do not be afraid of feeling. It is the child of faith. Be much more afraid of a religion that leaves your heart beating just exactly at the same rate that it did before you took the truth into it. I like that too. You could take the truth in about God's promises and God's warning and your heartbeat stays the same. Then something's wrong with you. You see, God told Noah that judgment was coming and he took it to heart. But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop with his attitude. Then it moved to his actions because it says 
in reverence, he prepared an ark. Now, it's interesting to note the order of the first three examples of faith in Hebrews 11. In verse 4, we see Abel, who shows us the beginning of faith, the worship of faith. In verse 5, we see Enoch, who shows us the continuance of faith, the walk of faith. And then we see in verse 7, Noah, who shows us the obedience of faith, the work of faith. And there's a progression here because Abel worshipped, Enoch worshipped and walked, Noah worshipped, walked, and worked. You say, well, how do you know that Noah worshipped and walked before he worked? Well, I know because the Bible tells us that. I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 6. Keep your finger in Hebrews 11. Go back to Genesis chapter 6. And notice verse 8. It says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. He was righteous like Abel by faith. He walked with God like Enoch by faith. And then he worked by faith. He shows us the obedience of faith. He invested over a hundred years of his life to building an ark. Now, God gave him a verbal blueprint in Genesis chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. He told him this ship is going to be 450 feet long. Now, to give you an idea, that's a football field and a half long. It's going to be 75 feet wide. It's going to be 45 feet tall. That's four stories high. It's going to have three decks, a window, and a door. That means there were 95,700 square feet of deck space on this ship. That's enough deck space to hold over 20 standard basketball courts. It had a volume the size of 1.3 million cubic feet. This is a huge ship. Can you imagine what Mrs. Noah thought when he came home and tried to explain to her what he was planning to do? You know, sometimes you hear about a guy building a fishing boat in his backyard. Noah built an ocean liner in his backyard. This was no weekend hobby for him. This was an all-consuming activity for 120 years. Now, I can think of a whole lot of excuses that Noah could come up with. This is going to cost too much. It's not feasible. It's going to take too long. How am I going to support my family while I spend 120 years building a ship? And a boat that size is never going to float anyway, especially when you put all those animals on board. And if you study the blueprint, this boat has no anchor, no mast, no steering, no rudder, no sail. And even if it did, Noah didn't know how to drive a boat. This boat is, is, is made for stability, not maneuverability. So he's got to say, well, once I get up there, how am I going to control this thing? And once the water subsides, what if it doesn't land on a level spot? Then we're going to have a mess on one end. It's the kind of project, if you gave it to a church committee, it would never happen. You know, they'd, they'd scratch it on the cleanup crew alone. Noah could have had a lot of excuses, but Noah set aside his excuses and he persevered in obedience until it was done. 
There are two verses in Genesis 6 and 7 that I love, and they're repetitive verses. This is what they say. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. For over a hundred years, he went out each day and he built an ark. You know, some people think that faith is an unearthly, impractical sort of thing. Well, by faith, Noah swung an axe and a hammer all day long. I would say that's pretty practical. Other people think that acts of faith are real glamorous, they're real exciting. Well, by faith, Noah cut down trees, sawed lumber, worked on making a ship for the better part of 120 years. I would say that's not real glamorous or real exciting. But you know what? It was special in God's eyes because it was a response of faith. And then the third thing we see in verse 7 are the results. Here it mentions three things that resulted from Noah's faith. First of all, it says he saved his family. Look at verse 7. For the salvation of his household. When Noah finished the ark and God called them to get on board, the only people who entered were Noah's immediate family. That tells me something about them. It tells me they believe God. But it also tells me something about Noah. You know, Genesis chapter 5 and verse 32 tells us that Noah's sons were all born after he began to build the ark. They were born when he was 500 years old. The flood came when he was 600 years old. So I know that for the first 20, 30, 40 years, he built alone. They didn't even help him. In fact, the Bible never records that they helped him anyway. I'm just assuming if it was me, I would make my kids help me. But you know, if you think more about the story, as they grew up, it would be pretty easy to be embarrassed about your weird dad who's building this ship. And it would be easy to be intimidated and swayed by all the taunting of the world around you. It would be easy for these young men as they grew up to distance themselves from the father to go off somewhere else and get away from Him. And if they had, they would have perished in the flood. But they stayed with their father, and when God said, get on board, they obeyed the command. You see, this tells me something about Noah. It tells me that Noah's faith in God had a powerful effect on his family. And while there are no guarantees, the Bible is clear that a godly father has a powerful influence on his children. Noah worshipped God, Noah walked with God. Noah worked for God. And his kids saw that. And they followed his example. Second result. He condemned the world. goes on to say in verse 7, by which he condemned the world. Now that doesn't mean that Noah was a judgmental, holier-than-thou guy. It doesn't mean he was walking around judging everybody all the time. You say, what does it mean? How did he condemn the world? Well, we noted earlier in 2 Peter 2.5 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We're not told what his sermon was, but we know that he had a great sermon illustration. He was building an ark for over a hundred years. And people had to be coming around saying, what are you building the ark for? And he told them. You see, in essence, Noah preached with his life. Noah's life was a sermon. His life of righteousness condemned the unrighteousness around him. His life of obedience condemned the disobedience around him. His life of faith condemned the unbelief around him. Let me ask you this. Is your life a sermon? 
Are people coming up to you and saying, why are you living this way? And you say, because there's Category 5 judgment coming. Are you a preacher of righteousness? Is your life of faith, is your life of obedience shining the light on and exposing the unrighteousness and the unfaith, or the lack of faith in other people? And then there's a third result. He became an heir of righteousness. It says, and he became an heir of righteousness which is according to faith. I want you to notice closely, this is not... Noah's personal righteousness. This is not righteousness because he was such a wonderful guy. If you are an heir of righteousness, what's that mean? You inherit it. It's given to you. And so he's receiving something that he didn't earn. And how's he receiving it? By faith. We're told that Abel was made righteous by faith, Enoch was made righteous by faith, and Noah was made righteous by faith. Noah began by faith, he continued by faith, and he is an example to us of the obedience of faith. Jesus said in Luke 17, 26, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. We live in similar days. In Noah's day, the warning was the flood. In our day, the warning is the coming back of the Son of Man to bring judgment on this earth. I like what Billy Graham's wife once said. She said, if God doesn't judge our world, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what I find interesting? If you read that passage in Luke 17, when Jesus mentions the similarities between Noah's day and our day, he doesn't mention the blatant sin that we both have in common. What he mentions is that people just kind of went on with their life in indifference. He says people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. What's wrong with those things? Nothing. They were just, warning was in the forecast and they were going on with their lives like their lives were going to go on indefinitely. They were indifferent to the warning of God. Somebody got married the day the flood came. Somebody had a dinner party planned that evening when the flood came. You see, that's the way it is in our day. God has prophesied judgment. It could come imminently. It could happen today. And people are going on with life indifferently, living for today rather than living in light of that judgment to come. You know, in Noah's day, there was only one way to escape the judgment to come. And that was to get on the ark. Only one way. Didn't matter if you were a good swimmer. Didn't matter if you had your lifeguard tag and could tread water for 20 minutes. There's only one way to escape the judgment to come, and that was to get on the ark. Well, there's only one way to escape the judgment today, and that's Jesus Christ. And so the question today is have you gotten on board? Have you gotten on board Jesus Christ? Because those who are in Christ are delivered from the judgment to come. Those who are in Christ can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you are on board, then we need some modern day Noahs who will believe God about His warning of judgment and in reverence will obey God 
letting their lives be a sermon to a lost world. Is that going to be you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage today. We thank you for this vivid picture of Noah. And Lord, as we read this account, as we go over the details of this account, we realize that it's not given to us just as a, a story of your power in the past. It's given to us to let us know that we live in the same kind of day. You have warned of judgment. It is imminent. And Father, I pray if there are any in this room today who have never entered by the door, have not come into Jesus Christ and let Him come into them, that today might be their day of salvation. For those of us who know You, I pray that we would be challenged by Noah's faith to be people who invest our lives in the future rather than the present and become people who impact our world for You. And Father, in doing so, we'll be careful to give you all the glory. In Jesus' name.